Section 2 of Three Times and Out by Nellie McClung. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Through Belgium. It is strange how people act in a crisis. I mean, it is strange how quiet they are and composed. We stood there on the top of the trench without speaking although I knew what had happened to us was bitterer far than to be shot. But there was not a word spoken. I remember noticing Fred McKelvey when the German who stood in front of him told him to take off his equipment. Fred's manner was halting and reluctant, and he said as he laid down his rifle and unbuckled his cartridge bag, This is the thing my father told me never to let happen. Just then the German who stood by me said something to me and pointed to my equipment, but I couldn't unfasten a buckle with my useless arm, so I asked him if he couldn't see I was wounded. He seemed to understand what I meant, and unbuckled my straps and took everything off me, very gently too, and whipped out my bandage and was putting it on my shoulder with considerable skill, I thought, and certainly with a gentle hand when the order came from their officer to move us on, for the shells were falling all around us. Unfortunately for me, my guard did not come with us, nor did I ever see him again. One of the others reached over and took my knife, cutting the string as unconcernedly as if I wanted him to have it, and I remember that this one had a saw bayonet on his gun, as murderous and cruel-looking a weapon as anyone could imagine and he had a face to match it, too. So in the first five minutes I saw the two kinds of Germans. When we were out of the worst of the shell-fire we stopped to rest, and, a great dizziness coming over me, I sat down with my head against a tree and looked up at the trailing rags of clouds that drifted across the sky. It was then about four o'clock of as pleasant an afternoon as I can ever remember but the calmness of the sky, with its deep blue distance, seemed to shrivel me up into nothing. The world was so bright and blue and uncaring. I may have fallen asleep for a few minutes, for I thought I heard McKelvey saying, Dad always told me not to let this happen. Over and over again I could hear this, but I don't know whether McKelvey had repeated it. My brain was like a phonograph that sticks at one word and says it over and over again until someone stops it. I think it was Mudge of Grand Forks who came over to see how I was. His voice sounded thin and far away, and I didn't answer him. Then I felt him taking off my overcoat and finishing the bandaging that the German boy had begun. Little Joe, the Italian boy, often told me afterwards how I looked at that time. All same, dead chicken not killed right and kept long time. Here those who were not so badly wounded were marched on, but there were ten of us so badly hit we had to go very slowly. Percy Weller, one of the boys from trail who enlisted when I did, was with us, and when we began the march I was behind him and noticed three holes in the back of his coat. The middle one was a horrible one made by shrapnel. 
He staggered painfully, poor chap, and his left eye was gone. We passed a dead Canadian Highlander, whose kilt had pitched forward when he fell, and seemed to be covering his face. In the first village we came to they halted us, and we saw it was a dressing station. The village was in ruins. Even the town pump had had its head blown off, and broken glass, pieces of brick, and plaster littered the one narrow street. The dressing was done in a two-room building, which may have been a store. The walls were discolored and cracked, and the windows broken. On a stretcher in the corner there lay a Canadian Highlander, from whose wounds the blood dripped horribly and gathered in a red pool on the dusty floor. His eyes were glazed, and his face was drawn with pain. He talked unceasingly, but without meaning. The only thing I remember hearing him say was, "'It's no use, mother, it's no use.'" Weller was attended to before I was, and marched on. While I sat there, on an old tin pail which I had turned up for this purpose, two German officers came in, whistling. They looked for a minute at the dying Highlander in the corner, and one of them went over to him. He saw at once that his case was hopeless, and gave a short whistle, as you do when blowing away a thistle-down, indicating that he would soon be gone. I remember thinking that this was the German estimate of human life. He came to me and said, "'Well, what have you got?' I thought he referred to my wound and said, "'A shoulder wound,' at which he laughed pleasantly and said, "'I am not interested in your wound. That's the doctor's business.' Then I saw what he meant. It was souvenirs he was after. So I gave him my collar badge, and in return he gave me a German coin, and went over to the doctor and said something about me, for he flipped a finger toward me. My turn came at last. The doctor examined my pay-book as well as my wound. I had forty-five francs in it, and when he took it out I thought it was gone for sure. However, he carefully counted it before me, drawing my attention to the amount, and then returned it to me. After my wound had been examined and a tag put on me stating what sort of treatment I was to have, I was taken away with half a dozen others, and led down a narrow stone stair to a basement. Here on the cement floor were piles of straw, and the place was heated. The walls were dirty and discolored. One of the few pleasant recollections of my life in Germany has been the feeling of drowsy content that wrapped me about when I lay down on a pile of straw in that dirty, rat-infested basement. I forgot that I was a prisoner, that I was badly winged, that I was hungry, thirsty, dirty, and tired. I forgot all about my wounded companions and the Canadian Highlander, and all the suffering of the world, and drifted sweetly out into the wide ocean of sleep. Sometime during the night, for it was still dark, I felt someone kicking my feet and calling me to get up and all my trouble and misery came back with a rush. My shoulder began to ache just where it left off, but I was so hungry that the thought of getting something to eat sustained me. Surely, I thought, they are going to feed us. 
we were herded along the narrow street, out into a wide road, where we found an open car which ran on light rails in the center of the road. It was like the picnic trolley cars which run in our cities in the warm weather. There were wounded German soldiers huddled together, and we sat down among them, wherever we could find the room, but not a word was spoken. I don't know whether they noticed who we were or not. They had enough to think about, not to be concerned with us, for most of them were terribly wounded. The one I sat beside leaned his head against my good shoulder and sobbed as he breathed. I could not help but think of the irony of war that had brought us together. For all I knew, he may have been the machine-gunner who had been the means of ripping my shoulder to pieces, and it may have been a bullet from my rifle which had torn its way along his leg, which now hung useless. Even so, there was no hard feeling between us, and he was welcome to the support of my good shoulder. Sometime through the night, my watch was broken, and I couldn't tell the time exactly, we came to another village and got off the car. A guard came and carried off my companion, but as I could walk, I was left to unload myself. The step was high, and as my shoulder was very stiff and sore, I hesitated about jumping down. A big German soldier saw me, understood what was wrong, and lifted me gently down. It was then nearly morning, for the dawn was beginning to show in the sky, and we were taken to an old church, where we were told to lie down and go to sleep. It was miserably cold in the church, and my shoulder ached fearfully. I tried hard to sleep, but couldn't manage it, and walked up and down to keep warm. I couldn't help but think of the strange use the church, which had been the scene of so many pleasant gatherings, was being put to, and as I leaned against the wall and looked out of the window, I seemed to see the gay and light-hearted Belgian people who so recently had gathered there. Right here, I thought, the bashful boys had stood, waiting to walk home with the girls, just the way we did in British Columbia, where one church I know well stands almost covered with the fragrant pines. I fell into a pleasant reverie then of sunny afternoons and dewy moonlit nights, when the sun had gone over the mountains, and the stars came out in hundreds. My dream then began to have in it the brightest-eyed girl in the world, who gave me such a smile one Sunday when she came out of church, that I just naturally found myself walking beside her. She had on a pink suit and white shoes, and wore a long string of black beads. Then somebody spoke to me, and a sudden chill seized me, and sent me into a spasm of coughing, and the pain of my shoulder shot up into my head like a knife, and I was back, all right, to the ruined church in Belgium, a prisoner of war in the hands of the Germans. The person who spoke to me was a German cavalry officer who quite politely bade me good morning and asked me how I felt. I told him I felt rotten. I was both hungry and thirsty, and dirty and homesick. He laughed at that as if it were funny, and asked me where I came from. When I told him, he said, 
You Canadians are terrible fools to fight with us when you don't have to. You'll be sick of it before you are through. Canada is a nice country, though. He went on, I've been in British Columbia, too, in the government employ there. They treated me fine. And my brother is there now, engineer in the Dunsmuir collieries at Ladysmith. Great people, the Canadians. And he laughed again and said something in German to the officer who was with him. When the sun came up and poured into the church, warming up its cold dreariness, I lay down and slept, for I had not nearly finished the sleep so comfortably begun in the basement the night before. But in what seemed like three minutes, someone kicked my feet and called to me to get up. I got to my feet, still spurred by the hope of getting something to eat, Outside, all those who could walk were falling in, and I hastened to do the same. Our guards were mounted this time, and I noticed that their horses were small and in poor condition. We were soon out of the village and marching along a splendid road. The day was bright and sunny, but a searching wind blew straight in our faces and made traveling difficult. It seemed to beat unmercifully on my sore shoulder and I held my right wrist with my left hand to keep the weight off my shoulder all I could. I had not gone far when I began to grow weak and dizzy. The thirst was the worst. My tongue was dry and swollen, and it felt like a cocoa doormat. I could see rings of light wherever I looked, and the ground seemed to come up in waves. A guard who rode near me had a water-bottle beside him which dripped water. The cork was not in as tight as it should have been, and the sight of these drops of water seemed to madden me. I begged him for a drink, and I pointed to my parched tongue, but he refused, and rode ahead as if the sight of me annoyed him. Ahead of us I could see the smoke of a large town, and I told myself over and over again, that there would be lots of water there, and food, and clean clothes, and in this way I kept myself alive until we reached Roulers. End of chapter 2